Welcome to episode 89 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I think I made a little mistake there, Shane. The This is the Objects to Observe in the February 2021 Night Sky. I'm Chris, and joining me is Shane, making live edits to our podcast. We are amateur <laughs> astronomers. That means we love looking up at the nighttime sky, and this podcast is for anybody else who likes going out under the stars. Let's talk about what to look at in the February sky. Shane, how are you at this time? I am pretty good. Thank you. Um, I'm looking forward to advancing days for advancing weather and we get out of this endless cloud that we seem to be stuck in. Yes, I am looking forward to that too. I was just saying I feel a little bit out of touch because I really haven't seen any stars or planets and barely even the moon through the clouds in the past month and a bit. So yeah, I think it's actually affecting my mood. I think I'm just more grumpy on a regular basis now. You know, I'm, really, I'm never really super happy, but no, uh, I was going to say, I can't tell. <laughs> yeah, I can't tell. Yeah. You couldn't be grumpier. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. 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 So, but we do have, we do have some planets coming around. We have Mercury and it's, yes. uh, this, this is the closest planet to the sun and it's making a, uh, a brief appearance in Aquarius, which is, uh, you know, it's not like you're going to see the stars of Aquarius, even if it's super clear. Uh, but basically, this is going to be in the southwest sky just after sunset. And uh, it's really best, it's going to be the best southern hemisphere morning apparition for 2021. So I think, I think we would be able to see it here if, if it clears. Haha. <laughs> and, uh, and, and certainly worth uh, hunting down, but uh, having a pair of binoculars and, and either stabilized or on a tripod somehow, I, I found to be to be the best way to uh, to hunt up Mercury and then to make sure that you have the uh, you know the the right horizon. You kind of get things uh, lined up properly, but it can be a little bit hit or miss. You know, I, I try to find it typically every time it comes around, and uh, you know sometimes you can't quite get the day. You need pretty good skies to see it. So. Um, yeah, you've hunted up Mercury a few times, haven't you? Um, yeah, once or twice. Uh, like, uh, to be honest, first of all, I haven't made many efforts at this. Um, I've seen it a couple times here, like in Regina. But um, when we've been on warm weather trips uh, in much more southern latitudes, uh, I've had way better success there just because it's higher in the sky. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then we have Saturn, Venus, and Jupiter, the three brightest planets. And they're kind of collecting all together down in Capricornus uh, just before sunrise. So they're, they're in the morning sky. So in the morning sky, you can look to the, uh, towards the east, southeast, and take a look for those uh, three bright planets grouping up. You know, uh, Jupiter and Saturn just out of the uh, so-called great conjunction and now pairing up with uh, with Venus in the morning sky though I, I don't think they're really conjuncting but uh, but you will be able to see them uh, together in the morning sky so uh, I kind of hope to be able to to get up and and walk around my house um, although it's extremely treacherous to do that these days there's like good six inch thick slab of ice uh, that runs along the side of my house that I would that I would have to use. So uh, we'll see if I'm able to get back there to take a look. Um, let's see, Neptune. Neptune, like Mercury, uh, Neptune is the furthest planet from the sun. So sort of uh, the opposite side of the solar system. But like Mercury, it's also in Aquarius. So that's kind of neat. Um, yeah. You'd probably, well, I shouldn't even say probably, you're really going to need a telescope to hunt it down. 
Um, but that should be, that should be possible. Um, and that would be kind of neat if you were able to see Mercury and Neptune uh, in your telescope on the same, on the same night uh, in the same constellation. Uh, I think that might be a little bit of a challenge though. I, I don't know it, the sky would be pretty bright there. Yeah, that would be tough. Um, you, you'd really have to know like what part of the sky uh, it is in as well, just so you're, you know, sweeping the right area. And I, I should add that with, uh, you know, with these five planets, uh, five? yeah, Mercury, Saturn, Venus, uh, Jupiter, and Neptune, um, all being close to the horizon, either in, in the evening sky, like Neptune and Mercury are in the morning sky, like Venus, Saturn, and Jupiter are, um, you're not going to see any surface detail or nothing of, of any good quality surface detail because they're uh, they're just going to be too low down and hugging the horizon eh? and that causes mm-hmm. a lot of atmospheric uh, turbulence to uh, to get in the way of, of your view yeah yeah exactly um, which is too bad it would be neat if we actually had like the the aperture to be able to see some of the uh, uh, the storms that are happening is it on Neptune or is it yeah. Uranus yeah, yeah 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 I think so but uh, but yeah they're all they're all very close to the the horizon and uh that's going to really prevent uh at least at this time uh, good views uh of of the you know cloud tops uh, on these planets uh, or surface details of mercury uh, i suppose in that case but this this time mercury you know i was trying for some surface details back in i think it was like october um end of october or something like that i remember it was cold but there's yet to be snow on the ground much and uh it seemed like i was able to see some some fleeting or perhaps illusionary <laughs> surface fe- features on, on Mercury. But, uh, but unfortunately uh, this, this apparition won't, won't be as good for those of us in, in the Northern hemisphere anyway. Right. Right. Oh, well, maybe the next one, maybe the next time. Now a p- couple planets where you might be able to see uh, something anyway, although Mars is getting much further away, but mm-hmm. Uranus and Mars, uh, they were, uh, they were really closely paired in January, but uh, right now both these planets remain in Aries, and and that is high up in the uh, in the western sky uh, for quite some time. Uh, I think at least a few hours after uh, after sunset. Although Mars is is moving further away, you know, certainly if people have larger telescopes or really good stable skies and can use uh, sort of those maximum high powers, uh, you may still be able to see some some detail on Mars. And I know some people like to kind of keep observing it sort of uh, all the way around for as long as possible. I, I did so much Mars observing last year. I kind of, um, I, I didn't even take advantage of, of the past uh, clear nights that, that we had to observe it. I, I looked at some other things and uh, certainly haven't, uh, haven't seen Mars uh, in more than a month anyway. So. Yeah. You know, I find with planets, um, you know, once, um, kind of the, the, the premium or the peak season, uh, has passed us. I move on to other objects because, you know, there's a lot of things to look at. And, uh, you and I spent a lot of time with the planets this last year. Uh, I loved it all, but it's, you know, it's nice to go to some other things like doubles and clusters and whatever else we decide to look at. Yeah. Do you ever look at carbon stars? I have very limited, um, record like i no i haven't uh well sorry i have but very little and i'm very interested in carbon stars 
Um, I love the color of them. Uh, they're just an interesting thing in general. Um, yeah. But there's not there's not a lot of focus on carbon stars, uh, particularly in amateur astronomy. You know, like there's a guide and an atlas for just about every other class of object, but not really for carbon stars. Yeah, maybe amateur astronomy is on a low carbon star diet. I don't know. Oh, <laughs> but but there is there is one really neat one, and it's called R. Leporis, which is down in Lepus, uh, which is just below uh, Orion. And that one is super, super red. Um, mm. And I first found that when I was, I was just sweeping when I first had my five inch uh, refractor and I was just sort of sweeping around. I was looking for M79, which is down there. And I just happened to, uh, to sweep up our Leporis. And I was just like, you know, as, as they dim down, these carbon stars are, are typically variable, I believe. Um, and what happens is because of, uh, because of that sort of, uh, dimming, the red really seems to come out and it must've been at like that peak, uh, red effect. And it was mm. so red, like, you know, I've swept around that area many times and hadn't really noticed it that much, but I kind of had everybody come and look through the telescope. If you can hit them just right, uh, these carbon stars can be, uh, super interesting to look at. Yeah. I, in my opinion, I don't think there's anything in the night sky that shows as much color as a carbon star when it's like, like you said, when you kind of catch it just right, like the deep red is so like amazing. It just jumps out at you. Yeah. Yeah. No, it'd be, uh, be kind of neat. I know there's, there's a few of them out there like, uh, well, our Leporis, I know V Hydra, which is a bright star in Hydrus, um, U Cygni and T, T Lyrae. Uh, which is a star up in Lyra. Um, anyway, those can be great stars uh, to hunt down, you know, it's sort of depending on the time of year. But, you know, if someone does have uh, have a pretty good uh, star atlas uh, right now, they can look for like our Leporis, uh, BL Orionis, which is apparently uh, fiery orange red. Um, UU Origae, that was the other one I was thinking of that... Okay. Uh, that uh, can be a, a pretty good one to observe. I wrote an article in UU or Reggae, um, I think about eight or nine years ago. Anyway, anyway, I just thought I would, uh, I just thought I would throw those out there because I was just thinking. There's, I think, I think one of the ones I was reading about yesterday is called Struve uh, 362, which is a double star um, up in up in the constellation. I think it's in Cephas. Perseus. Anyway, it's part of stock 23 and it, uh, I think it has a, has a red component to it that, that might be a carbon star. Anyway, just sort of thinking that as, uh, as we were chatting here about, uh, about these, these different objects and sort of Mars got me thinking about that. And with the planets, uh, not really presenting too much in the way of, uh, of, of observable features, you know, it's like, mm -hmm. hmm, there might be some other things for people. Uh, to take a look at, but as as February unfolds, we have uh, the zodiacal light start to yes. become visible after uh, after the moon goes goes away here in a few more days. Um, so, do you remember what the zodiacal light is, Shane? Yeah, it's sort of a like a triangular sky glow almost that emanates from the Milky Way. Um, isn't that leftover like solar system formation? stuff like material yeah so it kind of looks like the milky way but it's in our solar system solar system is part of the milky way 
Um, but what we're actually seeing is that uh, sort of like that disk, uh, that leftover disk of debris, which is in orbit around the sun and in the plane of, of the planets, like in that ecliptic. And it kind of like lights up that ecliptic with almost like a weak uh, Milky Way glow. Like if anybody's familiar with seeing the summer Milky Way, there's almost no mistaking. I, I can see parts of the summer Milky Way if I walk out to the edge of our, uh, of our subdivision. Um, and the winter Milky Way, I, I need to get to at least a, a decent uh, dark side about 15 minutes away that, that we sometimes go to. Shane, we can just just kind of get the mm-hmm. winter Milky Way there from, from that hiking trailhead that we sometimes uh, will set up our scopes at. Um, and then that uh, zodiacal light is sort of like an order of magnitude fainter. So you need to get... Uh, probably 20 minutes, maybe 45 minutes outside the city to really stand a good chance of seeing it. But right now, uh, the zodiacal light, like I said, which is like the leftover bits in the plane of our solar system, they're angled just right so that we can uh, see them being illuminated by the sun. And so we see it coming out of the West. And for us, anyway, it forms like a bit of a triangle, like you were saying. And I find that triangle points uh, almost just sort of off of the Pleiades, so it kind of points up uh, and sort of sort of finishes in and around the Pleiades, so it kind of goes uh, quite high. Now you can kind of confuse this with with light pollution mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. because it's it's sort of in in the west, and you might have driven uh, towards uh, the east for your observing site, like we often do. Um, but even even with light pollution in in the in the western. Uh, side of the sky we can actually see quite a bit of this uh, zodiacal light sort of once it gets a certain bit above the horizon because it just has this strange sort of uh very long elongated triangle uh, that we that we can actually see yeah it's it's a neat thing to see um you know if you have the opportunity to to uh, go out to you know somewhat of a dark sky um try to try to take this one in and right now i think when i when I ran the simulation, which is uh, uh, about a month ago now, I think right now, uh, or at least uh, when the moon sets on the 13th and 14th, uh, the zodiacal light around the middle of the month will be extending from the horizon and it will go more or less towards Mars because it's right in that path of the planets. So I think as we get towards the middle of the month, um, you know, you'll, uh, you know, towards the middle of the month, you'll be able to, to see it sort of pointing. But once you get past the middle of the month, then the moon will be back up into the sky again. And you have to, you have to wait till the following month. But um, in the sort of mid to late winter, we see it in the Western sky and we only will get it until about early April or so. Uh, and then we lose it just because the angle has to be just right. And then we pick it up again in the autumn, sort of in the late summer, and uh, then it's in the eastern sky in the morning. Um, so this is, in my opinion, one of the best times to see it because one, you don't need any equipment to see it. Yeah, and yeah. often on these nights, if we do get clear skies and we haven't been getting clear skies lately, um, you do need to have pretty good clear skies, but you don't need any equipment. So you can kind of just drive out into the country, get out of the car for 10 or 15 minutes, um, get dark adapted, and then uh, you know have a view of it. Uh, hop back in uh, the hopefully still warm car and hopefully the car will still turn on and then uh, you know kind of kind of head back maybe you can try for some aurora meteor viewing uh, for a short period of time as well but don't don't have to worry about setting up any equipment or or anything like that you can just have a nice view of this uh, uh, zodiacal light or zodiacal light as you call it yeah yeah no great recommendation 
And uh, yeah, you know, I think you might've inspired me. Um, I'll, I'll do anything right now to get out and see some stars or, or zodiacal light or whatever it might be. <laughs> yeah. And, and you're on the opposite side of the city. So for you driving uh, West is, is a bit easier. So you should be able to uh, get to some sort of spot out there that would have a pretty good uh, Western horizon without too much light pollution in it. Oh yeah. Yeah. Lots of opportunity here. Yeah. So that should be good. Uh, on the fourth, we have the last quarter moon. So that's going to be in, in the morning sky and uh, eventually it's going to go along and, and pair up with those morning planets of Venus, Jupiter, and Saturn. Yeah. Yeah. Right on. Is there anything good to look at on the last quarter moon? Uh, I don't know. What, <laughs> uh, what do you have in your back pocket here? Well, I was just thinking that, uh, you know, when, when you're looking up at, at the, at the moon and you start looking at that last quarter, you have that, uh, you know, it's sort of that large, uh, basin feature up at the top called Mare Imbrium. I was okay. kind of thinking about that. And the other thing is those Apennine mountains kind of sort mm. of out, outline it and you can, uh, you know, use binoculars to really get a good view of that. So again, you know, if you, if you have lots of cold weather, like we're going into here, uh, this coming week, but you're having some clear skies, uh, you can take your binoculars out maybe and try to take a look for those uh, Apennine mountains that are, that are in the, uh, in the Northern side here as we, I think, I think it's going to be like next, uh, well, what's the, what's the fourth there? That's uh, Thursday morning. So like Thursday and Friday morning uh, should have an opportunity there to, to take a look uh, at the Apennines and Mare Imbrium, uh, which is the sea of rains you know, sort of up in the, up in the top part. And then as we get into like further along, then Copernicus, which is one of the, uh, you know, most prominent craters sort of mm -hmm. on the Northern side of the moon there. Um, you know, the shadow of the Terminator is going to get into that zone as we get into sort of like the, uh, I think Saturday, Sunday kind of timeframe should be able to start to, to see some of, uh, some of those features there. Yeah, the, the Apennine Mountains are just, it's one of those things in astronomy that, you know, no matter how many times I see it, it just blows my mind uh, how incredible it is. And, you know, when you start to observe Earth features or Earth-like features on the moon or, you know, you know, we talked about Mars a lot uh, earlier, or I guess last year. Um, you know, it's so cool to me to be able to see these types of features and, and to think that you're looking at a mountain range from Earth. Um, and, and just all of the beauty associated with that. Um, and it, it gives the moon a little more character too, because I think, uh, you know, a lot of the features are definitely craters. So to see this mountain range is, is pretty neat. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that'd be cool. Uh, and then sort of moving along to the, uh, February 6th, uh, Venus and Saturn, they're going to be just, uh, 0.4 degrees apart, but they're very, still very close to the sun, only 11 degrees from the sun. So kind of thinking back, we've talked about this numerous times in the past where if you hold your fist out at arm's length, you can, uh, you can see uh, that the fist uh, compared to the nighttime sky is 10 degrees. So these are still pretty close to the sun, but yeah. I guess, I guess depending on where you are and your angle, you, you might stand a chance of seeing uh, Venus and, and Saturn close in the sky, but, uh, definitely would be a uh, challenge due to sky brightness. And, uh, certainly if, if you are, um, trying for these sort of things, uh, you're going to want to know your local, uh, sunrise times, uh, pretty close because you want to avoid looking at the sun mm -hmm. at all costs. Mm -hmm. Cause 
yeah, even a glance at it with binoculars can cause permanent eye damage. So um, we, we say that. And I, I mentioned these because I know that uh, in, my, in my sort of online reading, that more and more of these uh, planet pairings might become a popular thing for people to look at after the Great Conjunction and uh, all the social isolation going along and the interest in astronomy. Um, but some of these are going to be more challenging and, uh, and perhaps perilous being close to the sun than, uh, than, than some of the other ones we might talk about. So this is definitely one of those ones you're going to have to exercise a lot of caution. I don't think it's going to be really uh, an easily observable event. No, no, I, that one doesn't intrigue me. Um, it would be neat to see those two planets that close, but I tell you that close to the sun is just, uh, too risky. And, um, you know, I don't know if the juice is worth the squeeze there. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But now by the time we get, uh, we get towards February 10th, um, mm -hmm. thing, things are rising up uh, a little bit higher. So uh, Jupiter enters the scene and then, then Mercury is starting to, to enter the scene. But again, uh, th things are relatively close to the sun. Um, and then on the 11th, we have uh, the new moon. Time to go to a dark sky. Time to go to a dark sky. Exactly. So what, what are you thinking about for dark sky observing uh, at this time, Shane? Well, you know, if the weather cooperates, um, you know, maybe that site that we go to, that parking lot, um, White Butte Trails. Oh, yeah. People go cross-country skiing. I don't know. If I do anything for that, it'll be somewhere close. Um, yeah. Within probably 30 to 60 minutes of Regina. Yeah. Cause it's getting, uh, still pretty cold here, uh, for the next little bit. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, I've been looking at, uh, yeah, it's funny. Like you talk quite a bit about the double stars and I've been looking at a few of those and, uh, kind of wanted an easy, uh, easy program to kind of look through a few things. So I've been, uh, maybe thinking about looking at some of the open clusters up in Perseus, Cephas, Cassiopeia, mm -hmm. uh, kind of, kind of way before uh, before they get too low yeah yeah no that's a great plan lots up there to see too yeah i know it should be should be pretty good then as we get to the uh february 17th date uh uranus and the moon uh are going to be visible together uh just as it's getting dark so you you want to get out and observe as soon as it gets dark here uh anyway in, in our part of North America to catch them. Uh, and I think they're just three degrees apart in Eastern North America, but by the time they get here, they're, they're more like uh, five or six degrees, I think. But uh, yeah, so the 17th of February, uh, like I said, it's going to present uh, an interesting opportunity to see uh, Uranus and, and the moon together. So uh, I know that it can be uh, a little bit of a challenge to track down Uranus. I, I did it in the fall um, just with binoculars without, without the moon, um, you know, and it was like some back and forth took me half an hour or so to, to kind of get it nailed down. But on February 17th, uh, that, uh, that's a great opportunity to see them because they're going to be so close and Uranus is fairly bright being, uh, 5.7 odd magnitude. So, uh, you know, it, it's going to be washed out a little bit by the moon, but certainly, uh, 5.7 magnitude planet right beside the moon is, is something you can see when you're using your binoculars. You should try for that with your, uh, with your little image stabilized binoculars, Shane. Yeah. Yeah. I should. I've never actually tried to hunt down Uranus with binoculars. Um, you, you know, and it's a, it's a really cool opportunity, you know, obviously to find Uranus quite easily, 
Uh, but if you've never looked at it before, um, then it gives you an idea of what to look for. And uh, when it's less accessible, meaning, you know, not close to the moon or, or another prominent uh, object in the sky, you know, just having seen it, you know, in the past, you'll, you'll have a, a greater chance, I think, of acquiring it in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, and it does look, you know, you kind of get that uh, observation in and able to kind of see what, what it looks like. So like I, I have a little diagram here that we're looking at. You'll, you'll need at least, at the very least, a five degree field of view here. I think, I think several of my binoculars have like a, a seven and eight degree fields. My, some of my 35s have a, have a nine degree field of view. I'm, I'm not sure they're going to be large enough to, to hunt it down, but uh, we'll find out. I'm going to go out and take a look for that one. So on the 19th, we have the uh, first quarter moon, and it's actually going to be in and around the Hyades and the Pleiades. So what are the Hyades and, and the Pleiades, Shane? Well, those are probably two of the most prominent uh, open clusters in the Northern Hemisphere, um, certainly uh, within the wintertime. Um, you know, the Pleiades or the Seven Sisters, uh, I think a lot of people are familiar with them. You know, there's six uh, fairly bright stars, um, you know, forming a nice... Uh, a nice little cluster. And then, you know, binoculars or a telescope really show the beauty of it. And then the Hyades is um, kind of the, around the eye of the bull in Taurus. And, That's right. Uh, there's a lot of interesting stars there too. Yeah. So the brightest star in, in the constellation Taurus and uh, all these, if you can find Orion, this is going to be just above and to the right of Orion, but we're going to use the first quarter moon on February 19th to, to point these out. And uh, it won't really matter where you are in the world because, um, you know, the moon will still be in that sort of general area of sky. Um, but it will be closest to the Hyades uh, on the 19th. And Aldebaran is the brightest star in Taurus the Bull where the Hyades uh, resides. The Hyades is kind of like a, like a wedge or sideways triangle shaped um, sort of main part of the constellation, kind of like the head of the bull. And, uh, and that's what the moon is, is going to be uh, very close to. And now that's a group of stars, though. I think Aldebaran is not a member of that group, if I'm recalling correctly, but the, but the other uh, stars in that area are. Now, the moon will, will wash out this area of sky a little bit. But what we're telling you to do is if you haven't found these, uh, cl these clusters before, uh, the moon is going to kind of act as your aid to point them out. And then, uh, you know, as you, as you go ahead, sort of night to night, the moon is going to be getting brighter and washing out the sky more, but you can kind of uh, sort of see where they are in relation to the other stars. And then uh, a week or so later, once, once the moon is out of the evening sky, you'll be able to still point out where these, uh, where these open clusters are. And then uh, if you take a look at them at, at that time, naked eye and with binoculars, you'll really get, uh, get a pretty good view of them. Yeah. Yeah. And what's neat about the Hyades and the Pleiades is not only are they naked eye open clusters, but they're naked eye open clusters where you can see the individual stars. And there's not a lot of clusters like that, um, mm -hmm. that you just really need your eyes for. Yeah. They're, they're two of the best clusters, uh, in the nighttime sky. And I think the moon just sort of cuts between them. Uh, on and about the uh, the 19th of, of February. So that's good. I think I got things a little bit out of order here because I have on the 18th Mars time machine. And the moon. <laughs> What's that? Uh, time, time, time machine. machine. Time travel. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. My apologies for that. But on the, on the 18th, um, it's going to be uh, Mars and the moon that will be uh, less than five degrees apart. So how we had um, 
on the 17th, uh, Uranus and the moon. Cause I was thinking Uranus, uh, and Mars, uh, sort of in, in January and we were very close to each other. I was thinking that the, uh, the moon and Mars should pair up. And I guess it's, uh, on the 18th that the moon and Mars will be less than five degrees, uh, apart anyway, just after sunset. So, uh, that would be an interesting site. You know, if you've never identified Mars in the night sky before, um, you can see that Mars will be just, if you're in the Northern Hemisphere, Mars will be the red star just, uh, just above or to the Northwest of the moon. And uh, you can use your binoculars even to kind of scan around there and, and you'll find it. And uh, it's going to be half a fist length. If you hold up your fist at arm's length, you'll notice that, uh, that there's a bright red star about half of that distance from the moon. And, uh, and that's Mars. So that's how you can identify Mars. That should be pretty good for some people, I think, Shane. Yeah. Yeah. You know, everybody can find the moon. And then when something's close to the moon, especially like a five degree field, uh, you know, most binoculars and uh, a lot of telescopes, I shouldn't say a lot of telescopes, but um, you know, it's within a, a, a pretty easy uh, hop with, uh, with any telescope really to get there. Yeah. A great resource, you know, that people can use it. It's a free resource and uh, you know, uh, I use it quite a bit for my for my uh, astronomy class that I volunteer and and teach uh, uh, four or five times a year now, um, and that's skymaps.com. And the one thing I really like about skymaps.com is not only do they have these free uh, astronomy maps that you can download, but they also uh, really uh, walk you through how to see some some things in the nighttime sky by using the moon as the pointer. And that was something um, that we've often done in the past. And then when I found skymaps.com doing the same thing, I was like, this is just beautiful. Because I was trying to do this in my class and then I found their resource. And so I make, uh, I make sure that everybody who's taking my class is aware of it. And, you know, it was always like a bit of a joke. I'd say, hey, is, has anybody seen the moon before? And of course, people kind of laugh and like, okay, great. You can use the moon to do this. And it, it's something that hasn't... Uh, Quite, quite occurred to people before, I guess, you know, you need that little bit of a guide and, and we're trying to do that here and, and skymaps.com does that, uh, does that very well before. Uh, hopefully it's okay. I mentioned them. We've got no affiliation with them. I just think it's a really great resource. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't use that one very often, but it is a really, really good resource. Yeah. It's, I think it's mostly for people that are just getting, getting started in astronomy and sort of learning their way and to navigate around the nighttime sky. Like, that's what people will say, because because we'll go out and you know, you know, you just point your telescope somewhere in the sky. Shane, I've heard people ask you, well, like, how do you know you're looking at this cluster or that cluster? And say, well, you know, I've been doing this for a long time. I know how to read a star chart and whatever. But this is kind of how you get started: is that you use the moon uh, to kind of point some of these things out, and then that teaches you sort of those basic uh, skills for for finding a cluster. So. Um, you can't always use the moon. You have to use a star chart, but once you kind of are able to ID a few things, uh, you can kind of build, build upon that to, uh, to learn the rest of the sky. Yeah, exactly. The, the secret sauce is starting with something bright and, and moving or, or star hopping to dimmer things or, you know, your, your real target that you're after. Yeah. And it can take a while to kind of, to, to sort of really, really get the hang of it. And it just depends on how much, uh, how much time somebody's willing to put in and, and how much time they spend out under the nighttime sky to, to learn all that stuff. Yeah, exactly. So February 21st, uh, I said, uh, you know, th th this one has a uh, telescope required 
thing next to it. Yeah, yeah. I kind of hijacked your list a little bit here. Yeah, I'm um, just looking at that. Let's yeah, hear so it. <laughs> on the 21st, um, telescope uh, definitely would show you this. Maybe binoculars? Um, I'm not 100% sure. Uh, but there's a, cl uh, a Claire Obscure effect. So maybe I'll, I'll just define that quickly. Uh, Claire Obscure effect. Oh, what the heck just happened here? Um, <laughs> sorry, my browser just decided to uh, go kind of wonky on me. Weird. Um, so anyway, sorry about that. It's a, it's a, it's a lighting phenomenon. And what this means, uh, it, it's a term that some astronomers use, and it's adopted from uh, an oil painting technique uh, developed during the Renaissance uh, that uses varying shades of colors and contrasts, uh, uh, basically to create a, a three-dimensional effect. So on the moon, when there's a clear obscure effect, um, this is kind of like um, a little bit like the lunar X, but um, with this particular case, um, it's called, or the, the effect is referred to as the jeweled handle. And it's caused when uh, the mountain range bordering Sinus Arirdum uh, catches the lunar dawn. So like, you know, the peaks of the mountains become illuminated and it really creates a three-dimensional effect Okay. Um, because there's sort of a, you know, a dark area and then you'll see these peaks and it gives the moon a little bit more of a globe feel to it. Um, now this effect, uh, timing will be important and I probably should have added this in here. Uh, maybe I'll do it right now. Um, this occurs at 2300 ish, you know, around there. Uh, universal time. So okay. depending where you live, uh, you know, you'll either be able to catch this or not. And I think that lines up with more of a European event. I think uh, I so, because think... that's just going to be uh, five o'clock here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, North America, probably not going to see this. Um, but anyway, anybody uh, in Europe, uh, maybe even, maybe even like West Asia, possibly. Um, I'm not sure. But uh, anyway, that's possible for some listeners. And then uh, just a couple of days later, there's another one of these types of effects. And uh, this is uh, just west of uh, Aristarchus or Aristarchus. <laughs> Aristarchus. Um, yeah. And uh, uh, this dot uh, is, a, is another clear obscure effect called the star-tipped mountain. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, another neat thing to see. That one, I, I don't know the timing on. I'll have to look that up. Yeah, no, that, that's okay. It, it's a good point. You know, you're, and what, you know, what you're talking about here is that shadow line of the moon as, as it slowly makes its way across the lunar surface it, uh, it will illuminate different features in, in different ways, like you're describing here. I hadn't really heard about this clear obscure effect before, um, but that sounds really interesting. So, um, but sort of like sort of stepping back a little bit for people, uh, maybe if they just have binoculars or, or uh, they're looking at it with their eye, um, you'll see the most contrast where that lunar shadow um, is cutting across the surface of the moon. So if you have your binoculars and you scan across where the lunar shadow, sort of where the light and the dark area of the moon meet, uh, that's where you're gonna see the most detail on craters. That's not because necessarily that's where all the craters are. Um, sort of as, as you go out night to night, you'll see uh, you know, that, that, that different craters will become illuminated or different craters will become washed out sort of as, as the moon is becoming uh, more full uh, in this case. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and that's the neat thing with the moon and just the, 
like how dynamic, like while the surface itself is, is really quite static now, you know, aside from the odd impact from a, you know, a new meteor or something like that. Um, the, the way it's presented with varying lighting conditions is exceptionally dynamic and mm-hmm. really changes the appearance of, of the moon, um, which is why it's such an intriguing target. And, you know, it, the view of the moon can change over the course of an evening. You know, if you are able to uh, catch it when it first rises and observe it throughout the night, as that Terminator moves across the surface, um, different things will become more apparent based on the lighting and the shadows. And uh, it's, uh, that's what makes it challenging um, mm-hmm. to catch some of that stuff with the timing, but that's also what makes it a, a very interesting and dynamic uh, object. Yeah, I'm just looking up here to see, Sky and Telescope used to have these uh, moon maps and they were just, uh, uh, they were what they are. Okay, here it is. It's called a Lunar 100 card. And they're around $7 American. Um, I have one of these. And somebody in my class was talking about them again recently. And they're great. They're kind of like the Messier card that, that they used to sell. I'm not sure if they still sell that. But um, if people are kind of looking for sort of a very basic um, lunar map that they can, they can start using binoculars with uh, to learn the moon. Uh, I think this, uh, this $7 card, $6.95. From Sky and Telescope makes makes a great uh, makes a great starting point. Although uh, I, I think you might you might end up paying more in shipping these days than <laughs> than uh, than the six ninety five. But uh, but they sell lots of great books and other things at Sky and Telescope. So again, don't don't have any uh, you know uh, affiliation there. I'm just just mentioning that that's uh, that's a great uh, little resource for people. I think there's there's other great little resources around. If you go to uh, your local Barnes and Noble or Chapters or or wherever you'll be able to find, uh, you know, other, other little resources on, on the moon and that sort of thing. Maybe pick up a, an entry level astronomy book that has uh, some good lunar craters in it. Yeah. And, and Phil from the UK, one of our listeners that sends us uh, pretty frequent audio messages, uh, he purchased the lunar 100 and talks quite highly of it, uh, of that sky and telescope lunar 100. Uh, he said it's, uh, it's a really valuable resource. I think it's like laminated or yes. kind of made to be used under, you know, dewy conditions. Like it's meant to be beside you at the telescope. It's not a, it's not something for the office. Yeah. It's, it's a pretty good little, little resource. And again, it's, uh, it's not too expensive, so I don't have too much trouble, uh, making that, uh, recommendation. So on the 27th, we have the full moon, Shane. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but you know, it's a, it's a full moon. So we don't, we don't really observe as much during the full moon. You can't see, you don't have that lunar, uh, terminator, that lunar shadow to, uh, to give you that, uh, contrast between the light and the dark side of the moon so you can't uh, see the craters as well things are a little bit washed out you can see some of the mare but uh, but typically when when the moon is full we uh, we're not doing uh, as much astronomy anyway so I think that's that's all I have on here for the month so I didn't know if you'd seen if there was any uh, comets or anything coming up yeah I did take a look at comets Um, there's sort of um, there's one comet that's a little bit on people's radar um, it's like, what is it? C no R R four Atlas, uh, C okay. 2020 R four Atlas. Um, that'll be the brightest comet, you know, uh, assuming nothing, you know, really like flares up here. Um, it'll be the brightest comet in February. It's magnitude 10 though. So it's not super bright. Um, you'll need a telescope for that. I don't know. I guess some larger binoculars could probably pull that in. Mm-hmm. Um, but really the, um, uh, 
the prognosis on that one is probably by April, it'll get up to about a, a magnitude nine and mm-hmm. stay at that magnitude uh, going into May and then start okay. to fade after that. All um, right. But the, the overall like sort of comet overview for the year is the first half of the year isn't that exciting. There's, uh, you know, there's some dim comets up there that you need some large apertures. But towards the, the last half and even more so towards the end of the year, um, there's a real interesting comet uh, for December. Uh, so I know that's a ways out, um, but it's Comet C2021A1 Leonard. Um, and estimates right now in December are that that comet will get to fourth magnitude, which is pretty bright. You know, that's naked eye. Um, and uh, even prior to that, like in uh, uh, November, it'll be magnitude seven. Again, estimates. Who knows if this will really take place? There's well, that a, would be exciting. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of variability and unknown stuff with these comets, as you and I have talked about on previous mm-hmm. episodes. But, um, you know, it's always neat to have some of these to look forward to and, and to get excited about because uh again a fourth magnitude comet um you know that could be pretty spectacular i don't know if this is going to be like both hemispheres or just you know the north or the south let's see okay well let's Uh, keep an eye on that as we get uh further into the year we can uh update people on our monthly objects to observe in the nighttime sky how does that sound that sounds lovely okay anything else to add for this month episode no that's all i have chris All right. Well, thanks so much, Shane. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com.